Yeah, hold that, please. Level five. Thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to urge in the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to urge in the Channelized Bimbingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. So the 2023 edition of The 100 has come to an end and we'll look back at wins for both the Oval Invincibles and Southern Brave. And we'll hear from ESPN Crick Info's assistant editor, Matt Roller. England's white ball side returns to action this week with 40 20s against New Zealand. We'll hear from Captain Joss Butler and get the New Zealand perspective from cricket commentator Daniel McHardy. We'll hear it exclusively as well from former England bowler Stuart Broad, who's uh, been chatting about his first few weeks out of the game and we'll be joined by England international Lauren Winfield-Hill. So, as usual, plenty to come over the next hour. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Well, Harmi, people have been saying for years now that um, the Blast Finals Day is um, the highlight of the season and uh, you can't get uh, any better than that, except if you have two finals days. And you and I have been slow to come to the party, I still haven't put my red nose on, but I have to confess, you know, credit where credit's due. It was a heck of a day at Lords. Yeah, one I absolutely totally agree with you. And again, I am I'm slowly but surely coming towards it. It's I thought it was a a good contest. I thought it was a I thought it was well run. Both the the, the sort of men's final and the women's final. I didn't see you know a huge. I didn't see a women's final. I was it. I was the I was working on the Liverpool Newcastle game yeah. and. I got to the back end of the uh, the men's final and seen the highlights of it. I looked at a fantastic atmosphere at Lords, a bit like what the the Test match was at the at the end. But do you know what, man? I am so pleased for Tom Curran. I really am. When I when you see young players get thrust into international cricket early in their career, and you see them have a little bit of a struggle, isn't it great to see them come back? I know Tom had a a bit of an injury, but. To see him come back, you know, got to remember this kid was asked to bowl at the, at the, in the start of the power play and to bowl at the death overs every single time as a young man playing for England. And I think when you see, he's always he's always going to struggle. There was always a point in early part of Tom Curran's career because the job he was asked to do for England, a job he was asked to do when he played when he played cricket in the white ball game because of his skill sets, he was always going to have a struggle because. He was going to get found out. His slower balls were going to get picked up. 
he was going to, he, he then had to sort of go away and not reinvent himself, but just get his confidence back. And you know what, to see him, the way he's played this, this franchise tournament and the way he's been building up towards this franchise tournament, I'm so pleased that he had his day out in the final because uh, he deserves all the credit for, for building himself back in a position. And England have got to come knocking on the door again because of, because he, he is undoubtedly a very, very good cricketer. Absolutely uh, concur with that. And, uh, you know, he had these mental health issues as well and, you know, needed time away from the game. And so, yeah, brilliant. Absolutely. There were people asking whether, you know, Tom Curran was finished, which is absolutely ridiculous. Let's just talk um, briefly about the women's final as well. Um, you know, I, I've still got this hunch that Charlotte Edwards would become the first woman to coach a senior men's team. Yeah. And and her record is is truly outstanding. It's her third straight trophy, Women's Premier League, the Charlotte Edwards Cup, and uh, and now the 100. So congratulations to her. But also, what a way for Anya Shrubsole to uh, retire from the game. And that was brilliant. You know, she's the kind of cricketer that would have not wanted to go out with a fanfare, but um, she got one anyway, and she deserved it. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in front of twenty over 20,000 people, Anya's been a great servant to, to English cricket. Like Catherine uh, Silverbrunt, she's she's gone out on a on a high, unfortunately for Catherine. She didn't get her last game chance to perform, but Anya did. And and again, you know, part of a, a, a winning side. So, you know, she's done you know wonders for, for English cricket when asked to perform for England at the uh, at the highest level. But also when she's played for the franchise side of it, um, she's been involved in, in winning winning teams and to go out on a high at Lords in front of over twenty thousand people, I think that's dreams of Medoff stuff. So, you know, well done to Anya. Just a reminder, by the way, that uh, the Invincibles were thirty-four for five before Tom Curran made sixty-seven off just thirty-four balls and turned things around in the company of uh, Jimmy Neesham. Um, you and I might not have watched uh, very many of the 100 games. One man who did is ESPN Crick Info's assistant editor, Matt Roller. And uh, he was having a chat with our very own Sam Ellard after the final. If you look across the season, they ended the season with, with seven wins, a tie and a loss. Uh, by far the best record of any team. Uh, and they've been really good at sort of coping with with the losses of quite a few big players. They've had players come and go through... Uh, sort of international and franchise commitments. They lost Jordan Cox, who was having a really good mm. season to a really nasty finger injury as well. But they've sort of always managed to, to find a way and different players have, have come good at different times. Um, obviously, Tom Curran, the hero uh, at Lords in the final against Manchester Originals, coming in at 34 for five and uh, hitting 67 not out from number seven, pretty incredible innings before then closing it out with the ball himself. So, yeah, I think overall worthy winners in the men's comp. Um, and, and similarly, Southern Brave and the women's have been the, the best team across the three seasons, absolutely unquestionably, uh, but falling short in the finals. And then, uh, yeah, this year they, they've pulled it out of the bag. 34 for five in the final. You're thinking this, this is going to be an early night, right? We'll be home by eight <laughs> o'clock, right? But can you think of a bigger transformation in any player's batting than what we've seen from Tom Curran over the past couple of years, where he was always a bowler who could maybe bat a little bit. But now, I mean, goodness me, he's almost like he's a he's a better batsman than a bowler now. Yeah, well, I mean, Ben Stokes tweeted just after that innings, actually, and said he said TC's always had so much talent with the bat, but he's a proper player now. And I think that's that's been the big difference, really, is he was always the sort of guy who could come in lower down the order and be good to hit a couple of quick boundaries, but much more of a hit and miss player. But because of the fact he's had some injuries, some nasty back injuries over the last couple of years, sort of since he dropped out of the England setup, actually, 
he's been forced to sort of reinvent himself, work on his batting because he's been that's been what he's getting picked for for Surrey. He's played some games as a specialist batter. He played the full T Twenty Blast as a specialist batter for them this year. So he's had to find a way to get into the team, um, and that's been the way he's done it. So yeah, to come out today, I mean, that's by a distance the, the best innings of his life, I would say, and to do it under such pressure as well in such a grim situation. I mean, how often? five wickets down in a T20, T, a T20 game or a short-form game, do you see people knock it about and get to a score that's never really going to be good enough? But instead, he decided that, you know, the only way we're going to win this is if we get 150-plus and I'm going to have to play some shots here. And he, yeah, took a few risks but mm. came off. Earlier this afternoon, we saw the Southern Brave win the Women's 100, given the fact they lost in the final the last two years. Are they, are they popular winners? And what did you like about their team? Yeah, I think so. I mean, what the, what's been really impressive is firstly Charlotte Edwards as a coach has been unbelievable. She's just got a ridiculous record in in pretty much every competition she coaches a team in. They seem to win. She won the the Women's Premier League in India with Mumbai Indians earlier this year. Uh, in the regional competition, she won the the Charlotte Edwards Cup, no less, uh, with Southern Vipers. Um, and yeah, they, they've been the best team across the three seasons. I think the most impressive thing this year was that the ECB brought in this draft for the women's competition. And the whole idea of that was to sort of equalise the teams a bit. Uh, there have been a couple of teams like Welsh Fire, obviously, had struggled the first couple of years. So they, that meant they would get the, some of the best players. Um, and Southern Brave lost, you know, one of their best batters in Sophia Dunkley. And their, their most uh, successful bowler in Amanda J. Wellington, the Australian. They lost both of them in the draft, but have sort of managed to... To, you know, different players have again have stepped up, particularly domestic English players who maybe people won't be so familiar with who haven't played much international cricket. People like Georgia Adams, uh, Maya Boucher as well, who's had, had a couple of chances but not a lot for She's England great, in T20 cricket. She's had a brilliant season. <laughs> and yeah, today, um, you know, obviously a, a fitting farewell for, for a great of uh, English women's cricket in, in Anya Shrubsole, their captain. And I think that was a you know, she's someone who you wouldn't characteristically say would show much emotion. And then you, you sort of clearly saw how much it meant to her to have a, to captain a team to a trophy in her last game and to, to do it at this ground as well in front of a, a record crowd, 21,000 people. Final question, third year of the 100. Is it working is my first question. And then my second question, if, if the ECB came to Matt Roller and said, Matt, come on, this is going nowhere. We're sticking with it. But what needs to be done what would is there anything in particular you'd love to see change or something a little bit different about this competition so i th- i think this was the best season yet i think the uh, last year was was not great to be honest i think there weren't enough close games i think the the standard wasn't great there were a lot of injuries kicking around with england players and it it kind of didn't really feel like the main event of the summer i think this year it's clearly not been the main event of the summer after the ashes but i think it has done pretty well in terms of piggybacking on what happened in the ashes i think ticket sales were helped by that i think the women's game is benefited from having a, a tight women's Ashes series that England obviously drew and I think it, it has generally worked I think if you look at the sort of the stats that the ECB are putting out it's, it's suggesting that um, it's attracting a slightly different crowd to the one that you see at the T20 Blast for example uh, and, and definitely at sort of England men's test matches in terms of what needs to change I think the most obvious thing is just overseas player availability I think they, they massively need to invest in top bracket salaries and also protect them so that you can it, it's difficult to do but um, to find a way to sort of ensure that that big money is spent on the overseas players because at the moment you have slightly too many domestic players who aren't quite superstars who aren't going to sure. sell many tickets who are on that, those big salaries so obviously also, Matt, sorry, interrupt you. Is there anything they can do mm. anything they can do about big players coming over and saying you've got to stay for the whole competition. Because I think we've had some good names come over, but they mm. just disappear. And yeah. you almost feel like, you know, look at the Oval Invincibles, right? I mean, the Ryan's gone, 
Zampa's got. I mean, the fact that Paul Sterling comes in for one game, mm. I don't love that match. So I think it really ruins the competition when the big names come and just disappear halfway through. But is there anything that this competition can do about that? I, I think the one thing that they can do is just have talks with other national boards around it. I think if you look at, for example, those Australians and South Africans, they don't play the first game of their T20 series until Wednesday, so a good few, three days after the final. I don't personally think it would have been a problem for a handful of Australian and South African players to miss a couple of training sessions, play a high-quality game of cricket in a final at Lords, and then fly afterwards. And I think, you know, I think that's something where the boards need to get their head together and say, if we all want our domestic competitions to be successful, then we need to get to a position where players are staying. And that, that goes vice versa. ECB probably need to accept that certain players are going to uh, play in the Big Bash, for example, or the SA20 and, play, and stay for the knockout stages rather than pulling them out for training and stuff like that. So I think there is a way you can do that. And I, I think the only other way is just more money. I think if you, know, if you offer the top players 200 grand rather than 125 grand, more of them are going to stay for longer. And that was ESPN Crick Info's assistant editor, Matt Roller, in conversation with TalkSport's Sam Ellard. Before I get your thoughts on his very interesting thoughts, let's actually just hear from Invincible's captain, Sam Billings. It's definitely gone from strength to strength, and I, I love the format. I was a sceptic. Uh, I think I said that in the press earlier on in the week. I was a sceptic when it first came around. The actual product, the actual uh, format has been nothing short phenomenal, and the close games. I think it's also br- brought back a brilliant balance in terms of bringing bowlers back in the game a little bit more. I think the only only thing I can think of off the top of my head and it might sound stupid was I was watching a game last night I think they could do something with the graphics <laughs> I don't think it's I don't think it's that um, that simple like looking all over the place so that's that's the only thing genuinely that I can think of right now is um, yeah those graphics but I, I think it's a really good um, I think it's been a brilliant for a brilliant format and brilliant competition and look we know that in this country we've got the depth of players in terms of white ball cricket around this country as good as anywhere in the world I, I truly believe that and this this year has shown as well people being exposed to these big crowds under high pressure uh, needing that next level is as a perfect kind of graduation uh, from kind of blast which the blast is phenomenal as well uh, it produces so many good players but it's another step on the ladder um, that will just keep improving the depth that was Oval Invincibles captain Sam Billings chatting after the final. Two very interesting separate uh, points of interest there. The first one being raised by Matt Roller saying that the 100 is uncompetitive financially compared to uh, the numbers being paid to players around the world. Um, and <laughs> Sam Billings, well, well, a little bit of scepticism at the start. Hey, you wouldn't have found that on this programme. <laughs> no, you definitely wouldn't have found it on this. We weren't sceptical. We just hated it when it first started. So it wasn't so much scepticism. It was just downright, this is not great. But when you see it, how it's evolved and it's moved, I think the next part of it is, like Matt says, I think the players need to be paid more. We There has to be a serious consideration of going to 2020. But I think all in all, after three years, it has got better I didn't think last year's was great competition as in play. I mean, performance point of view, but I think this year, adding the quick bowlers into it, I think it's made a difference. And I think if you if you paid the players a little bit more, you'd attract some of the bigger superstars and that then takes it to a whole new level. I think that is what is probably needed for the next phase of, of this competition. I think to keep the American tournament at bear, the Caribbean Premier League is another one that'll 
give it to competition uh, in the future. And if England, are, if the top end are only getting paid, I think it's 125k for for the tournament, then you know these guys are getting that for three games over in America and in in the Caribbean and more. Then I think that's somewhere where I think the ECB needs to look. And the only way they can do that is have outside in, uh, in investment. And if that, if, in, if the ECB can put the ego to one side and let these people in, we could be on the, the cusp of a, a big, big tournament in England. And that's what we've always wanted. It was a very interesting interview with Joss Butler last week. Um, and the line that stood out for me was, he said his absolute conviction was that the future of English cricket to make it stronger was an eight-team franchise competition. He then said, whether that's the 100 or a T20 competition yeah. uh, is up to the ECB. And it, it, the implication, I mean, <laughs> he's not known for his controversial state- statements, Joss, to say the least, but that to me was clear that um, I think the players would prefer a T20. And it was interesting as well hearing Jamie Overton after the final saying that the 100 is different, markedly different to playing mm. a T20 um, and it just doesn't make sense to, uh, to just just turn the hundred into a T Twenty and we'll all love it. Yeah, absolutely. And the the thing for me, manners on that is, Josh Butler doesn't speak that much. Josh Butler is not somebody who is outspoken. He's somebody who just keeps his head down and 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 quietly goes about his business. But this is a guy who has, I think, unbelievable experience when it comes to playing in tournaments around the world. He has so much knowledge in cricket around the world. And if he comes out and says things like he did last week, people have got to listen to him because he is, I think he's not only so influential, when you've got somebody that's quiet and doesn't say much and doesn't speak, you know, and the position he's in, England captain, I think you have to listen to him. And I think he's spot on by when he just dropped it in that, I think he's implying that we need to go to 2020. If we do, we've got a fantastic chance to make it the second best tournament in the world behind the IPL. Right, you're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. And I'm delighted to say, as promised, we're joined all the way from New Zealand by Daniel McCarty, who uh, many of you would have heard uh, on our commentary team um, for the couple of test matches uh, at the beginning of the year. Daniel, good morning, good evening to you. Um, How are you? Great. Very, very good, fellas. There's lots of sport (laughs) going on. That keeps me happy. (laughs) <laughs> there is a very great deal of sport going on. Now, um, what can we expect from New Zealand? I must say it's very, very difficult to keep track of, of the amount of cricket that's going on in the world. But just following New Zealand is is quite a challenge. Uh, I don't know whether that was a B team or a C team that was in the UAE playing a couple of T20s there. I mean, the comings and goings are quite extraordinary. You know, the, you've got players joining this squad and that squad and, and some players here and some joining from there. It's very difficult to keep up with. But I tell you what, there's depth in New Zealand cricket that I've never experienced before. Uh, I would agree with that um, on, on all fronts. Uh, it has been quite a wild process keeping up with things. Uh, uh, most recently, Jimmy Neesham um, heading home uh, for the birth of his child. He was due to miss the, the one-day series. He'll now miss the T20 series. So an interesting uh, time for him, a great time for him. But he's one of those players that might be on a cusp of uh, you know cracking that uh, World Cup squad. So lots of comings and goings. They, they tend to put uh, people first uh, New Zealand cricket at the moment. Player welfare is a, a big thing. Uh, even with coaches, uh, in Bell's coming to the setup, of course, uh, with New Zealand because they want to give breaks to the the regular coaching crew. That they understand the burden. Three hundred and sixty-five days a year, you know, across all formats can be quite challenging for the likes of Gary Stead, the head coach. So 
There is good depth, though, Neil, to, to your point. You, you look, say, beyond the T20 series, we've got six genuine fast bowling options, quality bowling options, pace, swing, seam. I can't remember a time when that sort of facet of New Zealand cricket has been that strong. Uh, the bigger question uh, for the white ball game uh, for me, probably more so the, the 50 overs rather than the T20 stuff is uh, New Zealand's ability with the bat. How strong are we? Well, we're going to find out against a very good English side in their conditions. You mentioned, Daniel, you mentioned the coaches, you know, James Foster and, and Ian Bell to give them some experience in, in England in English conditions, which I think is great. But how good is it to get Stephen Fleming into the, the New Zealand sort of coaching system if you can get him in, you know, even even for just a short term? Because his ability and uh, his leadership qualities and also his knowledge is unbelievable. It, it really is, Hami. You, you know the guy, uh, a massive cricketing brain, hugely respected uh, as a captain during his time. He was lumped with the captaincy at an incredibly young age. So he's always dealt with that pressure with a real cool, calm, collected uh, nature. And you look at what he's uh, fashioned uh, as a coach in the, you know, the hotbeds of India uh, in the T20. This is his second uh, coaching stint assisting the Black Caps. And he'll join them for the one-day series. Uh, and what he's just finished off a bit of time in the hundred with the, with the Southern Brave, so it's a great Philip to have, to have a man of his experience, sort of uh, class and pedigree, just to offer a third eye perspective. Really, I, I don't think he comes in and tries to dominate things. I, I just think he he just tries to be a real sounding board for Gary Steadman. I also think it's a real credit to uh, the New Zealand coaching setup that they are willing to bring in um, you know different minds, different perspectives, different sets of eyes. You know, some coaches can be a little bit, bit bullish and hey, it's my way or the highway. Uh, but uh, New Zealand tend to to get the most out of their resources and like to think it think of things a little bit differently. And this is another example. So you know, anytime you get Stephen Fleming on board, you, you've got to be thankful. New Zealand have got this hangover from 25 years ago when they had a battery of uh, Dibley Dob medium paces. <laughs> you mentioned pace. Um, you know, Lockie Ferguson, Matt Henry, Adam Mill, and there's a bit of other pace around as well. And it's a complete transformation. It, it really is. And it, Adam Mill's a great example. He's a guy who, who can bowl 150, 150 plus, but his career has been sort of littered with injuries, unfortunately. But I'm not sure if it's a renaissance is the right word, but he's even found his way back into first-class cricket in the last uh, six to 12 months here in New Zealand. And it just uh, you know, shows uh, his body has not let himself down, uh, let it, letting him down rather than you pair him with Lockie Ferguson. And that, you know, by New Zealand's standards, you know, they're, they're all time quick bowlers. You know, we've, as you rightly point out, the Dibley Dobblers, the, the 120 plus used to bowl over 135 and uh, New Zealand cricket fans would rejoice. But now you've got uh, two genuine options. We're, we're, and then when you when you throw in the likes of uh, Tim Southey, just such a wily campaigner across all forms of the game, in the white ball, Matt Henry, maybe he's got a bit more to prove in T20 cricket, but his one-day record is quite phenomenal. And I, I think most New Zealand cricket fans, uh, fellas, are just so excited to see Trent Bolt back in black, there was real concerns they would never see him uh, play for New Zealand again after he turned down a central contract. This guy is such in demand in the T20 leagues around the world. He's of that age now. Um, I can understand him wanting to fill his boots. And I don't think he's played a one day since September last year. But since the last World Cup, I, I think he's taking wickets at about 15, 16. Uh, his ability to swing the ball early, whether it's in T20 or, or one day cricket, is, is fantastic. So, you know, New Zealand, New Zealand have real strength in that in that facet. 
As far as Kane Williamson is concerned, you know, he's not the first he's not the first captain to to stay with a team during injury. Um charismatic leaders are often wanted by their players, but it often doesn't work as well, you know, when a when a player is incapacitated and injured and and can't train and and can't do the usual things, he doesn't have the usual impact. Um so what what do you make of him? Going, staying with the team, being with the team in England. I mean, he's not a rumbustious character, is he? <laughs> it's, uh, is no. he? Is he there? Is he there really just for the physiotherapy, or or how does it work? Well, he's in the nets and training pretty hard by the by the sounds. To quote Gary Stead, he's in full rehab mode and he's back batting. He's progressing really well. There's still a lot of work for him to do, but they seem to be making quite a few noises uh, that things are on track, and he could find himself in that uh, World Cup squad. They've given themselves a little bit of wiggle room and they initially announced these squads to tour England. They said that the World Cup squad would be announced early September, which might have actually come before the one-day series was completed. Uh, I think Gary Stead most recently, maybe in the last 48 hours, has said uh, two weeks. So I'm I'm describing it as um, our equivalent to the doomsday clock. It's the Kane clock. Uh, I, I just think he's so central to New Zealand. Uh, if they are to repeat um, what they've done at, at previous Cricket World Cups, which, of course, is the, the priority for you know most nations right now. But when I initially heard the diagnosis of a, of a torn ACL, I think all of us immediately thought, right, what's that? That's eight, nine months. That's generally what it takes for someone to come back. Of course, you you always run the risk of re-injuring an ACL. That That's probably the, the biggest obstacle to go overcome longer term. But they... You know, New Zealand have been quite good at tempering expectations over the years, but um, I don't I don't get that sense. Maybe they're a little bit more confident than I am. I, I still would be quite staggered to see him playing at a Cricket World Cup due to that sort of nine month time frame. That that uh, maybe maybe I'm stuck stuck on a little bit too much, but the noises are great and it would just be huge for New Zealand because, as I mentioned at the top, the vulnerability maybe in the batting department, well, that would uh, that would you know, be exposed even more so if uh, Captain Kane's not there. We all know how good he is. And if he if he does miraculously go down, if if he does fit, he is fit and he does go, you look down the, I'm looking at the T20 squad, but it's more or less a, sim- it's a similar squad to the, the 50 over World Cup squad. Yes, it's like they're like England. They're going to India with experience. There's some experienced campaigners in white ball cricket that's played around the world. Do you fancy New Zealand's chances to to go and 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 win? You know, I, I think it's India's to lose because obviously they're playing at home. But if India do, you know, not win the World Cup, what do you think the chances of New Zealand going on to win it? Well, New Zealand are a tournament team. I know that's a, it's an old phrase that we, we, we throw to a lot of teams uh, around, but just look at New Zealand's track record. What is it, seven or eight World Cup semi-final appearances that made the last two World Cup finals? You know, it took a long time to get over that semi-final uh, hurdle. Uh, let's hope <laughs> we're not going to have six or seven World Cup final defeats before we get over that hurdle. I, I don't think they're as strong as 2019, 2015. Uh, like, for example, who opens... Uh, who opens alongside Devin Conway. Devin Conway is a world-class contributor, but they they, they told Martin Guptill, one of our finest ever one-day uh, players, thanks, Martin, your time is up in September of last year. They handed over the reins to a hugely talented, vibrant, exciting cricketer, cricketer in Finn Allen, but he probably hasn't made uh, the most of his chances. He scores at a lightning rate, 
but that risk reward hasn't uh, provided enough reward. So, you know, when, when I write down a New Zealand team right now here, Harmi, I've still got three or four brackets. And I don't think that is ideal this close to, to a world tournament, especially in your top order. If I was, you know, writing brackets in a bowling lineup, that's more horses for courses, isn't it? You know, at that ground, we're going to play an extra spinner. It might swing here under lights. We'll, we'll go with the extra quicks. But who bats alongside Conway up the top? Is it is it a more traditional player, Will Young? Um, if Williamson is not there, who fills that enormous void at number three? I think Daryl Mitchell's looked so good at four and five. I would imagine he would get elevated. But that exposes a middle order. Has Henry Nichols done enough to, to really convince us that he, he can, uh, you know, drive home huge runs in a world tournament? Questions there. Do they go for a wild card? Uh, Glenn Phillips, and more of a T20 specialist who's probably under-delivered in, in one-day cricket. So there are there are quite a few question marks, one through five in that lineup, and even more so if, if you take Kane out of the equation. Dan McCarty, absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for your time. And um, and as you know, New Zealand are everybody's favourite second team. Can I just say, how on earth um, have we not had New Zealand and England play a one-day international since the 14th of July 2019? And arguably one of the finest ever games of cricket we've ever seen. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of over it. No, I'm not over it. But 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 I can accept it was an amazing day, was it? And uh, when this rolls around, New Zealand cricket fans could take or leave the T20s. I think we're really excited about seeing these two one day sides meet again. Well, they played the last game in 2019, and they'll play the first game in 2023 of the World Cup. That is. <laughs> I know, and it has been noted. It has been noted. Uh, so, guys, it's great to see you. Great to hear your voices. I miss you all. Hope you're doing well. And, uh, you know, up the Kiwis. That was uh, New Zealand commentator Daniel McCarty. And we'll finish this section uh, by he- hearing from Ian Bell himself um, about joining the Kiwi camp. England's white ball sides have been incredible for the last three or four years. So it's, um, yeah, great preparation. And actually, um, one thing I would say, you know, in this 100 you know, in the back end of the season now, the wickets are a little bit tired. They have actually taken some turns. So if the wickets in these series do play like they have done in the 100, it'd be some good preparation, not exactly what you need, but just some good preparation for the subcontinent as well. That was former England batter Ian Bell, who'll be uh, part of the Black Caps. And a reminder, you can hear updates of all four T20s between England and New Zealand on TalkSport starting this Wednesday evening. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and Double Ashes winner Steve Harmison. And next up, we'll hear exclusively from former England bowler Stuart Broad. Hold that, please. Level five. Thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertz and the Bypassal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to Ertz and the Channelized Bimbingus at the Bypassal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chattel sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. And if you've missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, you can download the podcast from the following on feed, now available via the free TalkSport app or wherever you get your podcasts. One massive talking point that we haven't dealt with yet, Harmy, um, is uh, the omission of Harry Brook from England's World Cup squad. Let's hear, or remind ourselves anyway, of what Joss Butler uh, had to say about that selection decision. There's still a long time, I guess, before everyone meant to get on the plane. So we'll, we'll wait and see what happens. We all know Harry's a fantastic player and saw what he can do the other night. It's not like it's a surprise. We, we know what a brilliant player he is. He's just the unfortunate one um, at the moment to not be in that squad at, at the moment. Of course, Ben Stokes coming back um, and being available you know, just as a batter um, sort of changes the dynamic a little bit and Ben's a fantastic player to be able to welcome back. And, you know, it's a really tough selection. Like I say, there's been players performing really well over a period of time. Um, and that's where, where we are at the minute. England captain Joss Butler not ruling out the possibility that uh, Harry Brook could still make the team or make the squad anyway. It was, um, again, it's rather typical that, uh, you know, a couple of days after he was uh, left out of uh, the World Cup squad, Harmy, he scored that 100 in the 100. <laughs> I think the next highest score was about 15 um, he's a phenomenal, phenomenal talent. And, um, you know, another one is Phil Salt, actually. I mean, I've read quite a bit about um, England uh, preferring to go with Jason Roy and David Milan over Harry Brook and, and Phil Salt. But let's just concentrate on Brook for the moment. It, so that is a massive, massive call. And uh, there was, I maybe I'm imagining this, but was there a tinge of, of regret or doubt in, in Joss Butler's voice there talking about it? It did sound like that, didn't it? It did sound like, oh no, we've made a mistake. We've left a player that can can score as quickly as as Harry can um, out of the out of the squad. I still I'm still bewildered to to work out how they come to the conclusion that picking Root and Milan in the same sort of batting unit, which would be, and I'm not saying in the same team, but the same batting unit, um, going to India over somebody like Harry Brook. I get the Phil Salt argument. I think it was either Phil Salt or um, Jason Roy. I think without the South African One Day series, I think Salt might have had the upper hand if just if they weren't going to take Jason. But I think Jason proved that he he's still capable of scoring hundreds. So it, it was a no brainer to take um, to take Roy. Problem I had was you couldn't leave Harry Brook out. I, I really struggled to understand how you can leave a guy with that much quality and that much potential out of a of a World Cup squad on a big occasion. And we've seen him in the 100, just score that that 100 straight after he got left out of the squad. Well, I don't think it was a, a sort of two fingers to the selectors sort of um, message. I think it was just Harry Buck playing the game of cricket that he loves. I just hope that England don't get to the World Cup and go, right, we're not scoring quick enough in that middle section because we haven't got anybody in that middle section to score quick enough and regret not being able to take him. Joss indicated that possibly there's a there's still a chance if somebody gets injured. But I think if you're if you're seeing that, you're thinking, well, you picked the wrong squad. If your captain is coming out and saying, well, he's still got a chance. 
he's he might have a chance to play in the in the first game if there's an injury. I listened to the way Josh spoke. I thought they were they, they were a, a man of somebody who was going. I think we've made a mistake not taking Brock to this World Cup. And the selection of Gus Atkinson. Um, I I am as befuddled as anybody else about the omission of Harry Brook, but I am more confused about how England can find themselves in a situation where they go through, you know, a dozen fast bowlers in the last uh, couple of years, two or three years. They give debuts to the likes of of, of Josh Tung and, and Bryden Carson. And so you can see um, this line of cabs and who's next up on the rank. And, and then suddenly I was absolutely blindsided by uh, Gus Atkinson. Not being, I mean, he was promoted pretty quickly up into the England team but in the World Cup squad that that's blown my mind yeah I I, that's, I, I enjoy the way Gus has come into the game where he's worked hard for Surrey he's got himself and I think he was close to playing possibly in the ashes if there was there was injuries to even more injuries to sort of Mark Wood um, England did it in 2019 but they did it for a reason of well the change of qualification to get Jofra Archer into it. Jofra Archer was a special talent. I'm not sure Gus Atkinson is is at the level of what Jofra Archer's at. And we've seen him bowl in the in the hundred final in a big occasion, and um, he got dealt with. Uh, but the, he really did. So you've got to give the, the kid a chance. He's going to get his his head against New Zealand. He's got to get got to hit the ground running in international cricket in English conditions. I think what you're saying is spot on. And I think just to add to what you're saying. If it was in England, if it was in Australia, if it was in New Zealand, somewhere like that, then I'd say, yeah, he's got a chance of, but it's in India. And the pitches in India isn't going to suit him. I don't see him being a massive reverse swing bowler. I've only seen limited snippets of him um, with a red ball. But I think he's going as a, in the 15-man squad. And I think it'll be a, a couple of injuries if he, if he actually gets into the first 11. But we'll see what happens in this New Zealand series. I think that would be a big indicator and a confidence builder for Gus going into that World, World Cup squad. But I'm with you. You spend four years preparing to get players, especially the way they rotate them now. You know, try and rotate and trying to make sure that the red ball teams looked after, the white ball teams looked after, become complete left field a week, two weeks before you go out to the to the World Cup. It is a look a little bit of a strange one and a, a little bit of a panic pick. Okay, just a reminder that uh, you can hear updates on the England versus uh, New Zealand series on Talksport throughout uh, the series, uh, starting this week on Wednesday. Um, Okay, we're changing direction completely um, now. We've a lot to get through through the rest of the show. But last week on the following on feed, we released a special podcast as Harmi and the former professional footballer Leon McKenzie spoke to former Surrey and England batter Adam Holyoke about adjusting to civilian life after retiring from cricket in a series, a brilliant series called After the Lights Go Out. And this story is too good um, not to share with you. Uh, Adam uh, tells us of uh, a a moment, um, a memorable moment where he accidentally knocked out his Surrey teammate and our talk sports very own commentator, Alex Tudor. So I took him and my brother down to a, a boxing gym in Tooting, like a real underneath a pub. It was like a just hardcore. And um, we went there and it came to the end and end of the session and, and my trainer said, oh, look, why don't you guys spar? Adam, don't hit Tudes in the face, just hit to the body and just give him a little feel for what it's like. So I said, okay. 
so I did it and Tudes came out like really defensive and he and he wasn't throwing a punch so I'd have to lead to the body and then he was just like clipping me over the top so at the end of it for about a year or two years it was two years of frustration oh I remember when I beat you up that time in Tooting like, you know, <laughs> is that like, what you're saying yeah 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 remember, remember, big, remember big bro big bro remember when I beat you up in Tooting like that so I was like you didn't beat me up like I wasn't allowed to hit you in the face so this went on anyway we had a rain break so we got, had the boxing gloves with the big 16 ounce gloves on and and, we said, and he was, and he's still now in his mind, he's forgotten that I wasn't allowed to punch him in the face. He's built it up in his mind that he's beaten me up. <laughs> so he got down there and he said, come on, come on, let me in, let me have a go. Let me have a go, big bro. <laughs> so I go in there. And then, so he came out and he was, I think he thought, remembered back to the last time. So, but this time I said, look, I'll hit you in the head. Said, yeah, yeah, you can do what you want. Like that. So start sparring and he's, and he's, when he's throwing his jab, he's just bringing it back really low. And I said, look, you need to bring the, so I'm giving him tips while we're going. So, um, he jabs out his left jab, and I said, "Okay." I just mimed as if I'm going to like throw the right hand, but he just wasn't really picking up with what's going on. And then it happened again, so I just threw a little short right hand. I wasn't expecting. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to to drop him. <laughs> yes, Alex. So he kind of starts coming. I'm like, "Holy hell! I've just knocked our opening bowler out." <laughs> he just went onto the floor. I'm like, "Oh no!" So. And it was as if the God was against us that day because the rain stopped, sun came out, and we came, and literally as we were picking him up on the floor, the umpires came in and they were like, okay, um, we boys, we're out there in half an hour. And all the guys were like, holy, our captain's just knocked our opening bowler out. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's a brilliant story. And you can download the full episode of After the Lights Go Out with Adam Holyoke, available now on the following on podcast feed. One of the great stories that um, Adam tells it very well, but uh, I think Chudes tells it even better. Yeah, Chute tells it even better to the point of the lights go out. <laughs> and they literally did go out. An amazing man, Adam. Um, obviously, I was very, very close to Ben, his younger brother, who sadly passed away um, in a car accident. I obviously played under 19 cricket with with Ben. So the connection when every time Adam comes over, it's always great to see him. That man's gone through a hell of a lot in his life. And uh, to tell the story the way he tells it, it's brilliant. It was an amazing hour and a half where you laugh, you cry with laughter, you cry with tears when he talks about what happened to Ben. He's just an amazing, amazing man to be around, Adam Holyoke. And one, unfortunately, because obviously he was brought up in Australia and lives in Australia, England don't get to utilise him as much as possibly they could do because from a captaincy point of view and a leadership point of view, he was one of the very, very best. But he told that story about Jude's. Jude says again, and again to put into context, Adam says we were we were in a massive rain delay. We had no chance of playing. Jude's wanted a box, so he boxed him. He caught him in the ribs, banged him on the nose, and then all of a sudden, as Jude was hitting the floor, the blue sky came out, the sun came out, and it was forty-five minutes before we got out and play. And our he says, "I'm Premier Fast Bowlers lying flat-tailed on the on the physio's bed, trying to waking him up." So brilliant, brilliant story by a brilliant man. And another brilliant man, Stuart Broad. Um, we didn't have any, any doubt that he would uh, take to retirement as well as he has done. I mean, <laughs> he, had, he had a seat in the commentary box lined up before he'd even retired. Uh, but here he is uh, talking to Hawksby and Jacobs um, about uh, the decision to uh, not play another game of cricket. I think the time I'm going to probably feel 
like the the retirement will hit me a little bit is when the team next go and play. So mm, when the yeah. team are in either a training camp or in India, that might be a bit like I'll be getting WhatsApps from like Stokesy or Jimmy going, oh, you know, we're doing this, we're doing that. I think that's probably the time it will hit me. But um, I feel great at the moment. You know, ultimately for me, I knew sort of deep down inside I wanted to try and finish at the top. I knew I wanted my last ball or last bat to be in an England shirt. And to be able to get the opportunity to do that England versus Australia at the Oval in one of the best series I've been a part of just felt like the right time. You know, I, I still feel like I bowl, was bowling really well. I still feel fit and fresh. But, you know, I just I, I knew that I wanted to try and finish at the top. And ultimately, was it ever going to get better than, than that at my age? So, yeah, I, I feel really content with the decision. It's interesting. Yeah. You called it the day before and then went out and got a six with the last ball you faced and took a wicket with the last ball you bowled. It's got to be the best I mean, last day of anybody's got, career ever. It, it, in the it's like the old if, if Carlsberg did, isn't it, really? Because, you know, you'd, it, it couldn't have finished any better, could it? If you'd finished after that, if you'd gone off and said, that's it, I can't top that. But you kind of set it up the day before. I know. It's, <laughs> it's a, a fairy tale, really. No, I honestly, I, I, so the Friday night, I was sort of, I'd spoken to molly my partner i was like i really don't know it's driving me mad I, i'm sort of toing and throwing i can't make a decision like what i should do because i think my gut feeling was saying move on from the game like while you're still loving it because i knew i wanted my last memories of cricket to be very very enjoyable but i went on i knocked on stokesy's door and said look mate i'm gonna you know this would be my last game and it felt right it's almost as soon as i confirmed it with someone and and mm. uh yeah to go and walk out to bat with jimmy which was so special you know the aussies sort of gave a, a guard of honor walked over the boundary line with me old mates and then hit a six and then ultimately to i've always said the best wicket you can ever take is the match winning wicket it doesn't mm. matter if it's mm. steve smith or david warner or uh, alex carey you know the best wicket you can take is to win the game for your team so sure. to have that as my last ever ball is is um you know, something that will always bring a smile to my face. Mm. It was also such a brilliant series. I mean, it must have been fantastic to play in. It was so controversial at times and and yet compelling. It was everything you'd want an Ashes series to be. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately we would love to have won the series. I know it was a draw in the end, but I think I think we moral, all know we all victory. feel that if. Yeah, if the rain hadn't come in Manchester, those first those first three days in Manchester, we played some of the best cricket we played. You know, to get in the position. So I think if that rain hadn't come, I think we we were on the, we were like this bulldozer that wasn't going to get stopped at that stage. So yeah, it was. But ultimately, when Brendan McCullum took over with Stokesy, they said our number one goal is to entertain and have fun. And regardless of the result, everyone that was involved in that series, I think, was really entertained. It was certainly entertaining to play in emotionally very tiring because you just didn't know what was coming your way but yeah it was it was really special and I just hope that you know cricket did come to the forefront of a lot of people's minds because Ashes series is something that we in England love playing and we do support uh, and for it to be that exciting was uh, you know a dream come true to play in really. Were you surprised to see Ben Stokes come back to 50 over cricket? No, I, I wasn't too surprised, to be honest. Ultimately, if you if you have the chance to defend a trophy that you had such an integral part in winning back in 2019, uh, when it's just around the corner, and Ben Stokes always makes every England team better, I, I think it was a, an easy decision for him. Yes, physically, he's 
he's uh, his knee is playing up slightly. But you know, if, if you need fifty to win in a World Cup final, who do you want walking to the crease? Probably Ben Stokes. Um, just finally, what about Harry Brook? I mean, he's been playing so well in the hundred. You've been watching him. Uh, he's not going to make the World Cup, or do you think there could be a change of heart? I don't think there'll be a change of heart. I think I, I think he will be that sort of first reserve batter. Uh, ultimately, what a brilliant first reserve to have. It shows the strength of English cricket that that he might not be in that sort of starting eleven or starting fifteen. But you know, he's he's going to be a player for the for the future. He'll be bitterly disappointed, but he's put that disappointment aside and scored a hundred in the hundred the other the other day. So two months ago, I didn't think there'd be a team T Twenty Test or ODI where Harry Brook wouldn't be in it for England but ultimately if Ben Stokes comes back someone's got to make way and and he's the one who's only played a handful of ODIs for England he's the one who who has to make way so um you know I, I think in cricket or, or sport you're only an injury away from getting the opportunity so he'll keep very focused I'm sure that was Stuart Broad of course who retired after the fifth and final Ashes uh, test match having taken the final wicket to help England level the series 2-2 um, and he was talking with Paul Hawksby and Andy Jacobs on Talk Sports, so glad that uh, everything's going well for Stuart. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talk Sport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. Uh, in a moment, we'll hear from uh, Lauren Winfield Hill, but uh, let's uh, have a look at a couple of other stories. Laura Wolfart, who has one of the best cover drives in the game of cricket in the world at the moment. She's been named the new interim captain of the South African women's team after Sunay Lewis stepped down and uh, very interestingly, Cricket South Africa said that vice-captain Chloe Tryon was unavailable. What they didn't say was that she was unavailable because she was playing in the 100. And equally interestingly, uh, Spencer Johnson and uh, Heinrich Klaassen, who were also involved in the 100, um, didn't play on finals day because uh, they're beginning that South Africa-Australia T20 series um, on Wednesday. But uh, Chloe Tryon said, nope, I'm playing in the 100. Thank you very much. South African women's coach Hilton Morang says that uh, he's chatted through the issues about his continued employment with the players um, and everybody's happy. I'm not sure that that's exactly uh, true. But anyway, good luck to Lara Wolfart. She's uh, a brilliant uh, top order batter. Time now to hear from England international Lauren Winfield-Hill. She was at an event in Westfield supporting the ACE programme. And here she is in conversation with TalkSport's Scott Taylor. So Lauren, thanks for joining us here on TalkSport. We're down here at Sixes Westfield. Just tell us a little bit about what you're up to today. Yeah, so we've just come come along to um, show our faces, engage with you guys, um, and then we've got we've got some stuff with the ACE program. Um, some kids coming down and, and get stuck into a bit of extra batting practice. <laughs> Have you actually been in one of those nets before? Yeah, I've been. I, yeah, I've been in before. It's it's really good fun. It's a cool concept, but yeah, we. I don't know, we might get shown up by a bunch of kids, which <laughs> might be a bit embarrassing. As a pro, less than yeah. ideal. Uh, but we're here celebrating diversity with the ACE programme. Yeah. How important is diversity in cricket? Because obviously cricket's had a bit of a bad rep in the last couple of weeks with the with the report that's come out, but just how important is diversity in this sport? Yeah, it has. It's, it's taken a bit it, huge hit recently, but... I think it's, I mean, sport is often a reflection of society, isn't it? So I think, you know, we have we have work to do in sport and in society, but things like this are so important to engage with communities, engage with sort of grassroots cricket programmes, things that are going on in the community, just to build those relationships and interact with 
people that either play the game below you or come to watch you play or whatever. So I think, yeah, it's massively important. And I think it's one of those things where a lot of this stuff probably should have happened before a report gets published. But as long as it starts to happen, that's, you know, that's the that's the main thing, really, that, you know, from this point onwards, it, it gets better and we grow the game in a positive way. Exactly. And we've seen in franchise cricket as well, we get to play... With you guys get to play with different teammates from different cultures, different backgrounds. Mm. How much have you learned from playing with a few of the overseas over the years? Yeah, it's a really good point. I think that's probably one of the beauty of beauties of franchise cricket now is that you learn that actually other countries do it differently, other cultures do it differently in terms of that could be anything from prepping, you know, so how someone prepares someone might want to hit loads of balls. You know, I've played with some of the girls from India who historically hit a lot of balls. And then you'd get some some players from different countries that don't like hitting at all. And it's not been judgmental because it's different to what you do. And it's just been respectful of people do it different ways. And even within the same culture and the same country, people do it differently. Um, but I think it's just embracing those differences both... You know, in cricket, outside of cricket, whether it's religion, race, you know, whatever is, is, you know, being respectful and open-minded and encouraging. You know, we're really lucky at, at the Oval. We've got the two girls from South Africa who are very religious and they pray every time they go onto the field. So, you know, it, talking to them about their beliefs and how they like to go about, you know, that like someone like Cappy's very routined with pre-game during the game you know she likes to have her moments where she connects um to her religion and stuff like that which is something that i i would have never have thought of but it opens your mind to to lots of different ways of thinking of believing and it's really cool to sort of share those different perspectives and just be around different people like it's healthy to to get different points of view and to do things differently to learn about other cultures that's probably the beauty of cricket and what's it like for you? Because you spent a lot of your cricket until joining the Oval Invincibles up north in Yorkshire. So what was it like coming down south and probably, I know it's the same country, but Yorkshire to Surrey, there's two completely different cultures. Pricey. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the way. <laughs> yeah. Can of deodorant cost me a lot more down here. <laughs> now it was good. Like The environment that we've got at the Ovals is, is awesome. It's so welcoming. There's obviously a big sort of Surrey connection with especially a lot of the domestic players. But, yeah, I've always been lucky where it's been really welcoming. And I sort of knew JB before. I knew Laura Marsh, obviously played a lot of cricket with Laura Marsh. Um, and the girls are the girls are awesome. It, it always feels nice coming back, like, the next year where you sort of feel a little bit more relaxed about it all. You know everyone. Um, you don't have that, like, first day at school vibes. But, yeah, no, it's a really... It's awesome. And, and the Oval's a great place to play cricket, you know especially as a batter. It's just, yeah, for me, I really love the change of just being in a different environment for the month, being in a different space where, you know, where we're living and, you know, going to the ground. It's just nice, fresh, something different. And has it brought that enjoyment back to the game for yourself? So I read an interesting piece when you were saying after the World Cup you were mm. a bit spent, you, you mentally it was a bit of a struggle. But has the enjoyment now come back, that change of scenery with the with the Invincibles? Yeah, I don't think it's solely just from the change of scenery at the Invincibles, but it certainly helped play its part. I think 
I was over the whole COVID era and not in a good place. And I think, you know, those bubbles and things like that were fine if you were doing well. But if you weren't doing very well, it was it just went from bad to worse. But yeah, like coming down here certainly played its part. It was just like almost just trying to do things differently and embrace new challenges and take a bit of a risk. Like I took a risk leaving the superchargers where I was captain. I knew I was going to open the bat in. Um, and I took a risk to a team where, you know, like they're up north, they're who I've played all my cricket with. I know they back me in, like they know exactly what I bring. So it was taking a bit more of a risk and going into a new environment where you've got to prove yourself again. But yeah, certainly playing playing down here, is, uh, I've enjoyed it a lot and hopefully it continues. But yeah, it's it, it wasn't the sole factor. There was probably a lot of things that I just wanted to just make cricket light and fun again and worked really hard on what that might look like. But certainly, like, environments and the people that you play with and the coaches that you work under have a big impact on making that possible. What have you made of the, the growth of the game? Because now there's more opportunities, there's more franchise leagues. So, of course, playing for England's the pinnacle, but if you don't get an England gig, then you've got the Women's Premier League in India, you've got 100. You've got so many options as, as a women's cricketer. Yeah, it's so funny, you know, because probably the last two years... I've probably played better than I've ever played, played more cricket than I've ever played, but I've barely played for England. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I joke about it because I'm like, arguably I've played a lot worse and been picked a lot more often. But it just shows the health of, of well, cricket over here at the minute. But, you know, women's cricket, it's a, it's a hard squad team to break into. But, yeah, like having said that, it's I think that takes the pressure off, like the be-all and end-all being England is that, I'll always have desire to play for England, but I just want to be challenged and be able to test my skills against the best in the world. And the only place I could ever do that was in World Cups, Ashes, playing for England. Whereas now you get to do that away from that in you know in, in the comps all around the world. You got the big bash, like you say, you got the WPL. I went and played in the PSL. There's, you know, there's potential for that competition. You got the hundred here. So like for me, it's still ticking all my like you know what gets your beans going playing against world class players whereas previous to that it sort of felt like unless you were playing you know like international cricket it was hard to to test yourself and to push yourself it sort of felt like that gap was too big to drop down to whereas now there's like you know there's well arguably some of the franchise cricket that you play is as good as and if not better at times than international cricket because you have so many world-class players playing all around the world. You know, you look at all the top five, you know, in this competition, all the every, you know, the opening bowlers, the first few bowlers, top fives, like, is stacked. It's as good as any international team in the world. So I still get to to do that piece, which is really cool, which I think worried me at one point was, like, how do I like push myself and want to get better and want to challenge myself against the best players when if you're not playing cricket for England you, you literally can't do that has it given you a, a new a second lease of life then in, towards the middle to back end of your career that you know England's you mentioned England's not there but you're playing as well as you ever have done so that introduction of franchise cricket is just the extra boost that you needed to think okay if it's not England then I've got x y and z here yeah definitely and that's it, like I said, it's not necessarily 
the goal, but it's it helps for sure. You know, because it even like it helps with the England piece as well. Because previously, before you'd just be waiting for the summer to come around and then have a, a domestic summer to try and put your name into the hat for the England stuff. Whereas now it's like, oh, okay, well she she's done well in Big Bash or she's done well in over here or whatever. Or there's this competition and they scored runs in that competition. So it's like constant. You get to constantly put yourself in the shop window. And that's, yeah, that is, and it's massively exciting, you know, like you get to travel the world still playing the short format of the game, which is a bit easier on the body as well. But yeah, it's, it's not as worrying as it once was, where it was sort of like if you didn't have an England contract and you didn't play for England, how are you a professional cricketer? Like, literally, how do you pay your mortgage and have opportunity? And now we have, we sort of have that in abundance, really. It was England international Lauren Winfield Hill speaking to Talksports Scott Taylor. Uh, plenty of takeaways from from that, Harmy. Um, the one being never write off cricketers of the quality of uh, Lauren Winfield Hill uh, for international honours. She said that uh, a couple of years ago she thought she probably wouldn't play for England again. Now she's playing the best cricket of her life. Absolutely, and that's the that's the beauty about this great game we play. Sometimes, if you do take a step back, like we talked about Tom, Tom Curran at the top of the show. Sometimes when you take a step back and you go through some difficult times, your priorities change when it comes to mentality because in the start of your career, all you're all focus-driven and you're trying to be the best cricketer that you possibly can be. But then when you have a, a tough period, you find out a lot more about yourself and you find about who your friends really are and who get around you. And then you start thinking about the game and life in general with a different perspective. Sometimes that makes it better for when you do come back into the game. And you know, like Lauren's just said, uh, come back in the game as a better player, better person, and more understanding about not only the game itself, but you in it, in the game. And I think because of that, you know, the second coming to a lot of cricketers, um, whether it be the men's game or the women's game, is always the one that really sort of makes a success and the ones that last that little bit longer, largely down to the fact that you know, the, the, they understand the, the, the negative times. They know how to get through that passage of their, their careers and, and stay relevant and stay in the game. So, you know, good on Lauren for, for doing that. And it's great to see her back playing for England at the top and also playing very, very well. And as we head in towards, uh, we've got internationals, obviously, but as we head in towards the end of the county season, Harmi, our attention delightfully, I, I, from both of our perspectives, turns back to the championship it's uh, it's Surrey's to lose, of course, um, Division One, and um, and that we think we've uh, we've got Durham as being promoted anyway. They're going to win uh, Division Two. But some news from the Championship: Umesh Yadav has uh, been signed by Essex um, for the Championship run-in, and I saw Otis Gibson uh, talking a, a couple of days ago, hoping that Darren Goff would be able to sign them a middle-order batter batter for the last uh, couple of Championship games. Yeah, and Goffy's going to have to get his pads on, isn't he? So it'll be interesting. That'll be in the conversation. Give all the say, Goffy, I need a batter. I need an experienced batter. And I can guarantee Goffy will have put his name in the hat for the challenge and I'll put the pads on. I can bat, knowing Darren as I do. So I was with him last week playing golf at Trump. I'm with him on Tuesday and Wednesday on the uh, on the golf course. Um, so where he's going to get an experienced batter at this point of the season is um, I think that might be even out of the great magician golf's hands. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what the, the comings and goings at Yorkshire. They've got this penalty over the top of their head. 
Can you go out and spend money on a on a player? You, I'm not saying you don't really need. I understand from Gibbo's point of view, but when you are languishing at the bottom of the um, of the the second division and you've only got a few games to go, I would have thought you'd want to blood a couple of youngsters rather than go with an experienced batter. So maybe that's been taken out of context by by Otis, um, but I'm sure Darren's working on getting some experienced heads in the building for the start of next season. And uh, the dates of the um, International League ILT20 in the UAE to be played from January 19 to February 18. Just confirmation that uh, that will clash with the first three of England's five Test Match series um, in India early next year. A really interesting effect that uh, with the ILT20 going head-to-head with the SA20, which of course is South Africa desperately needs to keep the professional game alive in South Africa. Um, interesting that the economic dynamic of the ILT20 needing 10 or 12 international players, whereas mm. other leagues around the world, uh, you can only play four, so they're only hiring five or six at most. But what's really interesting there, Rulof Fanamerva played for Sunrisers Eastern Cape, who won the inaugural SA20, Harmy. Um, and he, he was the catalyst. You know, he came in after a couple of losses. He was put into the team. He, he was his dynamism fired up the Sunrisers Eastern Cape. And you know, at the age of thirty-eight, he got them into the final, and they won the final against the, the better team. And a couple of days ago, we heard the news that Rulof Fonamova has now left the SA Twenty and gone to the ILT Twenty because teams can only retain a certain number of players. Sunrisers Eastern Cape thought that they'd let Rulof Fonamova go back into the auction and then just buy him again because obviously they wanted him. He was a crowd favourite. They won their first edition, but the ILT Twenty snapped him up. And, you know, why wouldn't a 38, 39-year-old take the money uh, rather than hope for the best in the auction? Um, And so the SA20 is really, really being squeezed. I have always had a problem with this auction, uh, having so many auction and not being able to retain more than four players. It just doesn't make sense to me. You want to build a fan base. You want people to identify with a team, uh, you know, and keep a core it's franchise cricket, I suppose, and the auction system's here to stay, and it seems to be very popular. Yeah, and then that's that's the big point. It's how many you. It's all well and good having this auction system, but you've got to be able to, like you said, have the core. You've also got to give. I think you give the coaches and the captains of these teams the best chance possible. I think to only retain four, you're basically going. Well, I need me two Premier Fast bowlers. And me captain. captain. The rest of it, the rest of it's in the in the hat. And I think from a team point of view as well, building a brand. If you're building building a league, you're building the teams, you're building the the new look of the way the badges are and the sponsors' logos on the shirts and everything that goes with it. You need a, a consistent figure to keep building that brand. And I think because you've only got four, I think you're shooting yourself in the foot a little bit. The argument of going over to the ILT twenty. I see that because at the age that Rudolph's at, is that ILT20 going to be the same competition for the SA20 and what this American league could be for English cricket further down the line? Because it's always cash is king. And when you're talking about having a fan base, you talk about building some values of a team and having some consistency from a player's point of view, franchise cricket, doesn't that doesn't suit the franchise model. So... It's going to be interesting to see what happens, especially with the ILT20 as well, conflicting with the the India-England Test Series. So all that in the melting pot 
England might be going to India with a B team or a C team because of the fact that there's so much money going floating around at that at that time all around the world that I don't think Rudolf van der Merwe is going to be the only one that decides I'm going to go for the highest bidder. Okay, well, Joe Root is also uh, on the Dubai Capitals books, remember? Um, and uh, I, I, I make you a, a pledge, Harmy. If Joe, yeah, Root, he won't go. Yeah. <laughs> if Joe Root chooses the ILT Twenty over Test cricket for England, that is the very, very last involvement I will have in in this wonderful game. That is, yeah, I'll, I'll, by... I'll, I'm second with you. Like me and you can pack in. If, if Joe Root does go to the ILT Twenty over playing Test match cricket. I think me, my participation in this cricket show and cricket in general has gone because the the game has gone mad then. Yeah. Um, but I don't see that from the great man. I can see Joe Root going, I'll pop in and I'll pop out, but I will be batting number four for England for the next five years. I'm going to break all records. And I don't think, I, I'm not saying he doesn't need the cash because everybody needs the cash, but I think Joe Root has got bigger things on his mind than an ILT20. And I think that's batting number four. Or his best mate, Ben Stokes, when it, when the India tour comes around for five test matches. OK, it's time for the final word. And this week, it goes to 40-year-old Andy Northcote, who raised over £6,000 for charity by batting continuously for 50 hours and 15 minutes at the Woolpit Cricket Club, where he faced 9,774 balls in total. Uh, it hasn't been confirmed yet, but he's quietly confident that that is uh, a Guinness World Record. Well, they do say that um, 10,000 hours uh, of practice uh, makes perfect. Well, he's almost faced 10,000 balls there. The longest I, I've ever done anything continuously in my life, Harmi, was run an ultra marathon, which took me about 10 and a half hours. After nine hours, I began hallucinating and <laughs> lost all bearings. I, I I mean, I was staggering about. I didn't know whether I was running forwards, backwards or sideways. 50 hours. If he ever even just stayed awake for 50 hours, he batted for 50 hours. Nah, good on good on you, Andy. And well done for raising the money, but not for me. I must admit, batting for that long. I was there for a good time and not a long one. That was my, my philosophy about batting in my career. Um, but no, good for him. 9,774 balls. I don't think I've been awake to watch 9,774 balls in my career when it comes to my team batting. So, no, longest thing I've ever done. I'll be, uh, the odd drinking sessions lasted quite a while. We had evolutionary manners, uh, especially if I've been out with a certain talk sport presenter, Alan Brazil, in the morning. Um, but, yeah, when you look at it, yeah, I think now, I think the the mammoth sessions that I can, I can do are not the same as what they used to be. Um, but... That's about as good as I get. I don't even think I could run for 10 minutes, never mind 10 hours, um, the size of my body at the minute. So, no, I, I keep meaning, I keep getting asked to do these things for charity and what would you do? Um, and even somebody suggested, because of your love of golf, would you fancy playing 100 holes in a deer? And I wouldn't even fancy doing that because I think I get so sick and so bored. So, no, well done. Brilliant for the uh, for Woolpit Cricket Club. But, I'm not sure I'd have been joining them for too long of that 50 hours. Well done, Andy Northcote. You've been listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. And if you've missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, as always, you can download the podcast from the following on feed, available um, at the, via the free TalkSport app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We'll be back at the same time next week to look ahead to England's ODI series with New Zealand. But for now, this has been another edition of the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. At TalkSport, we absolutely love it when our fans get stuck in. That's why we want you to join us in The Dugout, a brilliant new TalkSport listener community. It's a place where you can tell us what sports you're into and who your favourite teams are. And tell us what you think we could do better, like big guests and new sports and that. You could win an Amazon voucher for taking part. What are you waiting for? Visit TalkSport.com slash dugout and get stuck in. 18 plus, terms and conditions apply.